0: April the 5th, 1978, Leslie Ann Barker was looking for Mr. Wright. The 28-year-old, fun-loving, well-respected teacher had a classroom full of special education students who adored her at Akron's Hotchkiss Elementary School. Her days were filled with their laughter, their tears, their struggles, and successes. But nights were Leslie's chance to focus on her goals. She'd had boyfriends before, but there was nobody steady at the moment. So when she heard a popular nightclub on Waterloo Road called Reds was bringing in a matchmaker, she thought she'd give it a try. And as luck would have it, she met a guy and they made plans for a date. In the days before GPS, It wasn't unusual for Leslie to drive someone to her somewhat isolated home near Akron's Merriman Valley so they could learn the route to her house. She did it again that night, leaving the bar with her new romantic interest to show him how to find her on date night. Then it was back to the bar to drop him off. It was 2.45 in the morning when they finally said goodbye in the parking lot and Leslie pulled away to return home. Just before dawn, firefighters responded to an alarm. A car parked on a well-known Lever's Lane on the ridge above Merriman Valley was on fire. As they worked to put the blaze out, it appeared to them a large animal had been burned up in the back seat. It wasn't an animal. It was Leslie. From Ohio Mysteries, the Akron Beacon Journal, and beaconjournal.com, this is Unresolved, a look at the unsolved murders and disappearances from the greater Akron area. I'm Paula Schleiss, co host of Ohio Mysteries, and helping with this ongoing series, which is covered in this podcast as well as in stories in print and online our Akron Beacon Journal reporter, Stephanie Warsmith, and my Ohio Mysteries co-host, Steve Yoder. Now, Unresolved, Episode 4, Leslie Ann Barker. Leslie Barker was born in Bay City, Michigan, where she spent her early years with her parents, Ken and Elizabeth Barker, and her brother Glenn. In 1966, they moved to Akron and settled into the city's west side, an area known for its nice middle-class neighborhoods on tree-lined streets. They lived on Tamiami Trail surrounded by a heavily forested area of the city that sits atop the beautiful Merriman Valley. It was in Akron that Leslie fulfilled her dreams of becoming an educator. After graduating from Firestone High School, she earned her teaching degree from the University of Akron. She hadn't fallen far from the tree. Her dad, Ken Barker, was an educator, and in 1978, He was dean of the College of Education at Akron U. Leslie remained living at home even as she entered her third year at Hotchkiss Elementary School where she taught special education students. In 1978 she had 17 youngsters between the ages of 11 and 14 all in need of the kind of patience and special attention that she was so skilled at giving.
1: She loved what she did, um, loved the kids. Having a
0: small classroom like that was just I- ideal for her. That's Sandy Shaw. Shaw was a counselor at Hotchkiss when Leslie worked there.
1: She had intermediate, so those were students in grades 4, four 5, and 6 at the time. And this was special ed. And she took the kids on field trips. And I think one time she may have even stopped by her house and the kids saw where she lived and stuff. She was just open.
0: Shaw said Leslie's personality stood out in other ways as well. She was a fun person. She never met a stranger.
1: She was one of those that I would
0: call a free spirit. That energy came in a small package. Leslie was petite, five foot three inches tall, a hundred pounds soaking wet, short blonde hair. She'd had boyfriends over the years, in high school, college, and after, but she hadn't found the right one yet. About once a week or so, Leslie would go out on the town with her friends, Disco was all the rage. Gloria Gaynor was belting out, I will survive. And Peaches and Herb were shaking their groove thing. Everyone was using the dance moves they learned from John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever the summer before. And one of the top hot spots in Akron for dancing, disco, and dates was Red's, located on Waterloo Road. We asked Akron Police Lieutenant David Widden, and Detective James Basilich, if they remembered Reds, Widden and Pasilich agreed to look over Barker's case one more time for us. They're both too young to remember the disco era, but Widden remembered the reputation of Reds.
2: I, I just remember it being like a, uh, a disco type club for you know the the uh, young adult crowd, but uh, it was uh, you know just a young adult hangout, very popular at the time in that area.
0: So. Back in 78, Reds was a natural to host a new style of matchmaking called Selectricution. The Beacon Journal did a feature story on it, and the North Carolina bachelor who invented it was hired to come all the way to Akron to showcase it. It was really very simple. Here's how the concept worked. As singles filtered into Reds, they'd be given a label with a unique pair of initials. If you saw someone you wanted to meet, you'd mark those initials on your card. And when you had five people in your sights, you'd turn your card in. Then a computer would generate cards for each person who had at least one person who wanted to meet them. Those people would get a card with the initials of their wannabe suitors. Then the hunt was on. You could either stroll through the bar looking for labels that match the initials on your card, or give the game operator a message that would be displayed on a big electric sign, like, ED, meet me at the bar, CS. And you could choose to meet them or not. Three weeks after that feature story ran, Leslie and a fellow teacher named Kathy thought they might go check it out. Shaw recalled standing outside Hotchkiss in the parking lot when Leslie and Kathy tried to talk her into going with them. But it was a Wednesday, and Shaw had two kids at home. She did not let her hair down on weeknights. They said, well,
1: let's go to Red's tonight. And Sandy, come go to Red's. Well, no, you guys go ahead.
0: I'll hear about it in the morning. That evening... Leslie dressed all in red for her trip to reds, red slacks, and a red coat and vest over a white blouse. She and Kathy settled into the end of a long oval-shaped bar. They got up occasionally to dance, but always returned to the bar. At one point, folks remembered seeing them chatting up a couple of fellows. The bartender who served them was George Shapiro, whose father owned reds. He knew Leslie, that had gone to Firestone High School together. They didn't know each other well in high school, but Leslie had been coming to Red's about once a week for the past six months. And each time she sat at the bar, she and Shapiro would strike up a conversation. She was a real nice girl, Shapiro told a Beacon reporter in 1978. She always seemed to be in a pretty good mood, and she never seemed to drink too much. Shapiro would later recall fixing Leslie two screwdrivers, Vodka mixed with orange juice, a rather modest amount for an entire evening. Shapiro didn't see Leslie leave. She was there, then she wasn't. The last time he noticed her, it was about 1 a.m. Around 5.50 a.m., Akron's fire department took a phone call from a man named Robert Vandal, who lived on Menor Road, not far from Leslie's home. He and his wife, Eloise, were awakened by three loud popping sounds, then looked outside to see flames not far away. Police and firemen arrived to find a car on fire. It was parked on a gravel car path that ran alongside the railroad, an area that had sometimes been used as a lover's lane. The explosions the vandals heard were likely the tires blowing from the heat. Arson investigators would determine the car had been doused with a flammable liquid and set alight. A car does not burn that quickly and that completely unless it has help. As the fire was brought under control, Whitten said firefighters debated an object they could see in the back seat.
2: They, they think they first thought it was an animal when they when they're putting out the fire. It was uh, the reports indicate it was heavily involved in flames. So, once they were able to get it under control, they thought there was an animal in the back seat, and then they soon, you know, determined that it wasn't an animal; it was an actual body back there. But the car was—it was completely, completely burned up, along with her. You know, the body was uh, burned down, and there was no—it was just obliterated. So it was—it um, was a total, you know, totally consumed by the fire.
0: The vehicle was determined to be a 1977 red Pontiac Grand Prix, and there was enough of a license plate remaining to lead authorities to the Barker residence that morning. It was Leslie's car, and Leslie was not in her bed. That morning, at Hotchkiss Elementary, Leslie's co-workers were wondering where she was. Shaw, the counselor, went into the teacher's lounge, ready for a full report on the fun evening. Kathy was there, but Leslie was absent.
1: So at first you think, okay, they just couldn't make it today. Then I, then you start thinking, no, that wouldn't, she'd be here. You know, young people can do things that <laughs> older people cannot <laughs> and function. So I didn't think Of anything like us until I heard the news. And I had a radio in my office and I heard about a car being burned, you know, and a body was found. And a couple of us were just standing in the hallway saying, That can't, that couldn't have been her, could it? I think we were standing in the hallway when the principal came by who was Tom Royce. And uh, he saw us clustered there together and the sadness, I suppose, on our faces, and told us what happened.
0: Well, what was your reaction?
1: I couldn't believe it. That was one of the most horrible crimes. Of course, now with IDTV, you see it all the time. But back then it was it was more than I can imagine someone would be that cruel.
0: Leslie's body was burned so badly. The coroner wasn't initially able to rule on the cause of death or whether Leslie was sexually assaulted, he had to rely on dental records to identify her. But months later, the coroner adjusted his findings. He said enough remained of Leslie's lungs to tell she had been breathing when the fire began. And while it was impossible to know whether she was conscious or not, he ruled her death a homicide by asphyxiation. So where did Leslie's assailant go after setting her car on fire? Did he drive away in another car or walk? Any footprints or tire tracks that might have answered that question were obliterated in the effort to put out the fire. Police did an early morning stakeout of the route Leslie would have taken home the night she was killed. Waterloo to Main Street, North to East Market, West to Aqueduct, then down Merriman Road, they stopped motorists who were used to traveling about in those pre-dawn hours and asked if they had seen anything that Thursday morning. No one had. They interviewed paperboys who delivered in the Mentor Road area and stopped in to chat with gas station attendants and employees of all-night restaurants along the entire route. Nothing came of that. There were some residents on Menor Road who said they thought they heard a car idling and then drive away, probably between 3 and 3.30, the morning Leslie was killed. But no one was bothered enough to look outside to see what it was. Through interviews with people at the nightclub, however, detectives soon found the last person to see Leslie alive that night. They never released his name, but he was 30 years old, lived in North Canton, and worked for United Airlines at the Akron Canton Airport. The man, it turned out, was matched to Leslie through that electrocution game. They chatted, hit it off, and made plans to go on a date Friday night. But Leslie was always worried about people finding her home, which was tucked into a maze-like neighborhood off the beaten path. Detective Basilich explained her solution for that.
3: It wasn't unusual for her to meet somebody. Um, they may have uh, a date set up for later in the week or, or the following week, and she would have them follow her to her house so they knew where she lived, and then they would go back to the bar before it closed to get her car after they went to uh, breakfast in that morning or whatever. And again, it's all before GPS and all that, so her idea was, hey, I'm going to show them where I live and how to get there and then drive back. So that wasn't unusual for her to do something like that.
0: And so, well after midnight, Leslie drove the man nearly 10 miles to Tamiami Trail, pointed out her house, then took him back to Red's. The man told police he remembered before they parted, he asked if he should lock the passenger side that he was exiting. He couldn't remember what she replied or whether he had locked it. Then... Both of them pulled away from the parking lot in their separate cars at about 2.45 a.m. That man volunteered to take a lie detector test, and he passed it twice. Detectives interviewed numerous people, friends, family, every former boyfriend they could find.
3: There's probably more polygraphs and um, hypnosis than I've ever seen any other investigation that we've had here that I've read through people.
0: And everybody passed?
3: Everybody passed, yeah.
0: As for the place where Leslie was found, turns out she was well acquainted with that gravel car path. Friends told police she'd used it before, in high school and college, as a hangout. Shielded as it was from homes in the area, next to the railroad and surrounded by trees... It was an excellent spot for young people in search of a private place to maybe do a little drinking or smoke some marijuana. That was just one more reason for investigators to suspect that whoever killed Leslie knew her, Detective Pasilich said.
3: People that you look for in the homicides versus the suspect of the person who did it is probably somebody known to that person. We don't have that many stranger ones. They do happen, but... By and large, if you go by the odds, it's somebody that that person knew. Maybe not very well, Uh, may only know their name, may know them by passing, not necessarily boyfriend, girlfriend, family member, something like that, but they know them. They're not normally stranger on stranger.
0: And interviews were all the police had to go on. The fire had done its job of eliminating almost everything. Really, the only physical clue that remained was the accelerant. Initially, that turned into a red herring. A couple of weeks after the murder, the state fire marshal's laboratory in Columbus released findings that some interpreted to mean the accelerant was a special high-octane gasoline, not unlike the kind used in airplanes. Obviously, thoughts turned to the date that Leslie had been matched with, He worked at the airport, after all. Even today, people who remember this case recall it as the one where the killer used jet fuel. But Whitten said he doesn't know how that report got twisted. The accelerant wasn't high-octane anything, and Leslie's prospective date worked at an airline's counter, not anywhere near jet fuel pumps. Police do know the chemical composition of the accelerant used to burn the crime scene. But that's all Witten and Pesilich are saying. It's the one bit of physical evidence they have that could verify information someone might present in the future. Leslie's case grew cold fast and never warmed up. Shaw, the counselor, said in the days after Leslie's murder... It was so hard, watching signs of her existence removed from the school. That morning,
1: a sub was sent. You always think that you have to be there for these children, that you must be there. Nobody can teach like you can So you're always there, and to see what happens when a person is no longer there, the lock is pried off your cabinet, your desk drawer is pried open, and school goes on. The students had no idea at that time.
0: It's a new, here comes a substitute. It helped that a year after Leslie's death, some people created a special garden at Hotchkiss Elementary in her memory. It was full of flowers and plants
1: and a bench and you could go and sit and it was a
0: place of peace and quiet. But it never helped with the frustration that a killer walked free. It
1: was one of those things, it was like, this person is going to get away with this. You kept waiting to hear something, hear something
0: and nothing. Detectives Pesilich and Whidden say they'd like nothing more than to solve this one. Leslie and those who knew and cared for her deserve justice. But Whidden said there is literally nothing to put through modern advancements in forensic technology.
2: They tried a lot of different things, like the roadblock, um... Polygrass, you know, hypnosis and tried a lot of different things trying to generate something. They they talked to a lot of the people, especially you know their uh, boyfriends or people that they thought she hooked up with. But they you can tell just looking at it that they just really didn't have a lot and there wasn't really any any direction to go with this because she was a t- I mean she was an elementary school teacher. I mean and she wasn't into uh, you know any kind of illicit activity. You know her dad was dean of the college over here and. You could tell. I think Jimmy would agree that there's just this is cold as it can get.
0: If you have any information that could help solve this case, please call detectives Basileich or Whitten at the Akron Police Department, 330. 330- And that's it for this month's edition of Unresolved, a collaborative podcast between Ohio Mysteries and the Akron Beacon Journal.